0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T Greg Doucette, here in my home office in the northeast corner of Durham, North Carolina. I don't actually know if good morning is the appropriate greeting because we are recording this on Monday night. I usually record on Sundays for Monday release. But I have been dealing with work stuff and trying to do my taxes, which is a royal pain in the ass. Uh, So we are recording this on Monday night. I'm shipping it over to Mike to edit. You will either get it sometime Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday morning. We haven't decided yet. Uh, So you should get this on most likely May 12th, maybe May 13th. Some podcast notes. We do have the Fireside Lawyers. I've mentioned them on a few episodes now. We did a show back on May 6th that basically what we started doing is we've recorded the shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I think the plan is to release them on Wednesdays and Fridays so that we have a day to uh, edit. We were going to do live streams, but it just became a real pain in the ass trying to uh, do a YouTube live stream, and then only like 10 people are watching it live. You have a few people watching it after the fact. So we figured, why not record it? edit it, and then release it on Periscope and YouTube and everywhere else, and y'all just watch it whenever you get around to it, as opposed to doing the uh, the live stream routine. So we did an episode with, um, uh, gosh, I guess at this point it would have been two episodes ago. No, one episode ago. Back on May 6th, we put it on Periscope. So check that one out if you haven't seen it yet. We recorded another one this past Thursday with legendary jury consultant David Ball, That episode should be coming out on Wednesday the 13th, and then we are recording another one tomorrow. I actually haven't looked at our agenda, so I have no clue what we're going to talk about. I think we're answering questions that were on Twitter in between the last few episodes, Uh, but check that out. I mean, it's it's mostly lawyer-centric. It is not really criminal justice fuckery related, although that does come up every now and again. It is predominantly me and three lawyers that I work with on a pretty regular basis just shooting the shit for an hour and answering some of your questions. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, in Threadnought News, very long ago, back in, I can't remember if it was June or July, uh, a bunch of chuds kept saying that I was unfit to comment on Vic Mignona's lawsuit for libel slander because I was not a Texas attorney. So as a joke... We decided to apply to the Texas Bar. I did a GoFundMe for the application fee and some of the other stuff because uh, I wasn't going to go out of my own pocket just to win a bet. Uh, but we ended up submitting all of that stuff back in late June, early July, whenever it was. It was almost a year ago now. Uh, well, that process has been complete. The Texas Bar has approved my character and fitness, amazingly enough. And I should get an email this coming Thursday about how to go about uh, getting registered. Basically, they wait until they send you your law license, and then after you're licensed, you take the oath, and it's in their instructions. They actually want you to attach the oath to the back of the license, which just seems ludicrous to me. That is a That must be a very Texas thing. So like for me, my oath is framed separate from my license. They're both on the wall in my office, and then one copy gets filed with the court, and then a third copy is in my file cabinet in case something goes wrong. Uh, Apparently in Texas, you only have one copy and it gets attached to the back of your license. It's very peculiar. Uh, So anyhow, those are the podcast notes. Uh, Let's get into everything else. But before we do that, please make sure to join the conversation online. If you have not already, you can follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L dot com. And if you would like to become one of our financial supporters, the people who keep this show going and help keep my uh, sound guy paid so we can do competent sound editing, you can do that on Patreon. The website is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Again, patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. I've been skipping the political news lately. And it's really just one of those everything is awful type scenarios. Nothing has really changed. You know, I checked the uh, the coronavirus stats for America before I sat down to record. We're at 1.37 million known cases, 81,000 known deaths from COVID-19. That's already up 26,000 people from our last episode, was dropped back on April 27th. Uh, so we're averaging 1,800 people dying per day. And everyone's like, fuck it, time to reopen. Quarantine's for pussies. And so now North Carolina is what we call phase one of our reopening. And even though nothing dramatically changed, if you look at phase one reopen versus the actual quarantine stay-at-home order, there's not a whole lot fucking different. But the language that we are reopened basically prompted everyone and their fucking dog to go out and buy shit like they lost their fucking minds. It's like Black Friday in the middle of May. Uh, So you're going to end up seeing a spike in infections in 14 days. I will be utterly fucking astonished if we do not have a whole bunch of people coming down sick because people are just fucking stupid. Our political dynamics in this country are stupid. And on top of that, to make the stupidity worse, the exact same fucking Trumpist Republicans who are insisting that we reopen immediately... Are also insisting they're not going to wear masks because wearing a mask is fascism. They're not going to physical distance because that's an, you know infringement on their liberty. They're not going to wash their hands because soap is for cucks. You know, it's just basically insisting on a non-existent right to infect other people, and that's driving me fucking bonkers. Because you have these people trying to co-opt the language of the Constitution, the language of the courts. When you know you go back to our episode one hundred, there's no fucking basis for that. The courts, the government, and really the the political theoreticians who came up with this entire fucking system that we've used for 220 plus years have upheld the notion that states have a general inherent plenary police power to do health regulations because we've been dealing with pandemics since the founding of the fucking country. So, you know, it's just, that's part of why I'm continuing to skip politics because there's nothing good to talk about. But like this past weekend, you had a bunch of these fucking militia cosplay goat fucker morons in downtown Raleigh, you know, one of them's it, it, the News and Observer had a reporter. His name is Travis Long. He's a photojournalist. He took pictures and he uh, used the hashtag Meal Team Six, which was an amazing hashtag. And the pictures themselves are amazing. They went global viral. I mean, it's really awesome for him. But like you have one guy with an AT 4 anti tank grenade launcher. With the fucking inert tag on it, so we know it's not even functional. He got it from a military surplus. You got some guy taking a selfie of himself with a long gun that's actually been carved out of wood. So these fuckers don't even have, several of them don't even have real weapons, but they want to dress up like they do. And then one of the stories that went viral is that one of these guys downtown who's out for a walk with his wife minding his own fucking business sees a bunch of these redneck bastards with their guns and says, Hey, please stay away from my kid. And one fucker actually goes out of his way to leave the group he's in, cross the street, and throws a Sig Heil Nazi salute at the guy, you know, it's just, it turns out the guy was actually a public defender in Wake County, where I practice. His wife is a prosecutor in Durham County, where I practice. And all this shit's on video. And when they posted about it on Facebook, you know, one of the things the guy says is, I can smell you from here, whatever the fuck that means. And... Something said, you know, she said something to the effect of, he said, I can smack you from here, okay? A three-letter difference of a word doesn't make a fucking difference, but, of course, the blue igloo bastards are all on, you know, her Facebook going, this never happened, this is fake news, look at this video. Well, you know what? You look at the fucking video, and I see a guy out with his wife and kids saying, stay the fuck away from me, and a bunch of people insisting, fuck you, black man, I don't have to listen to what you say, I'm going to invade your space if I want. Whereas if the roles were reversed you have a little mud Arbery, Georgia situation where a black guy coming into white guy's space gets executed because the white people think they own the fucking world. So anyhow, I apologize for that rant. I just had to get it off my chest because you just have a lot of really, really dumb fucking people. And the sad part is some of them have a point. You know, we're doing tremendous damage to the economy. In the name of trying to prevent communicable disease. What we need to be working on is figuring out how we can reopen with a minimal amount of risk. If that requires everyone standing six feet apart and everyone wears masks and people wear gloves, well, fuck it. That's what we've got to do. But the same people wanting to reopen also don't want to do any fucking risk mitigation. So we're all stuck in our fucking houses. Uh, so, anyhow, that's it for politics. Let's get into the criminal justice fuckery because I know that's the reason you all are here. You don't listen to my political opinions. Uh, Because, of course, I am a man without a party. But we do have an awful lot of criminal justice fuckery since we did not have an episode last week because I was still working on my fucking business accounting for my taxes. Uh, So we do have some cool stuff in general research news. And I use the term cool loosely. It sucks, but it confirms stuff that we already knew. And we don't get to talk about research stuff often. Uh, So we got two research entries. One is a study that was done by Stanford University on traffic stops. And I have mentioned before on here and on Twitter the concept of a veil of darkness, this notion that police who would normally engage in racial profiling can't when it's dark outside. And so because of that, you see the number of minorities who happen to be um, uh, cited or arrested that goes down because, you know, of course, the officers can't see what race they are. Well, all of those studies up to this point have been fairly small. So, Durham back in 2016 went ahead and commissioned a study from a group called RTI, and they looked at roughly 20,000 of these stops. And they came to the same conclusion that certain departments or certain units, rather, within the Durham Police Department, happened to profile blacks and Hispanics during the day. Uh, well, this new study out of Stanford looked at over 95 million traffic stops. And you will be shocked by the results. Let's go ahead and quote from the story. It says, quote, The largest ever study of alleged racial profiling during traffic stops has found that blacks who are pulled over more frequently than whites by day are much less likely to be stopped after sunset when a veil of darkness masks their race. That is one of several examples of systemic bias that emerged from a five-year study that analyzed 95 million traffic stop records filed by officers with 21 different state patrol agencies and 35 different municipal police forces between the years 2011 to 2018. The Stanford-led study also found that when drivers were pulled over, officers searched the cars of blacks and Hispanics more often than whites. The researchers also examined a subset of data from Washington State and Colorado, two states that legalized marijuana, and found that while this change resulted in fewer searches overall, and thus fewer searches of blacks and Hispanics overall, all, minorities were still more likely than whites to have their cars searched after being pulled over. Subquote: Our results indicate that police stops and search decisions suffer from persistent racial bias and point to the value of policy interventions to mitigate these disparities, the researchers write in the May 4th issue of Nature Human Behavior. The paper culminates a five-year collaboration between Stanford's Cheryl Phillips, a journalism lecturer whose graduate students obtained the raw data through public records requests, and Sherrod Gale, a professor of management science and engineering whose computer science team organized and analyzed the data. So this type of stuff has been known for a very long time. I have repeatedly pubbed the website opendatapolicing.com, which is a website run by the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, And their data is fascinating. It's a very interactive website. You can pick different states, you can pick different agencies within the states, and you can see the racial disparities right there in the data, plain as day. You know, it is one of those things that opened my eyes to systemic bias and policing, because I didn't believe that existed. I used to be a a big-time Republican, You know, the whole driving well black that we saw on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, I thought that was just for comedic effect. I didn't think it was actually real. I just assumed that black folks were worse drivers. And then when this initial batch of data came out, this would have been around like 2011, 2012, I was still in law school. And I was going through it. And I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, I, I was computer science undergrad, data is my jam. And there was no conceivable way to explain these racial disparities without assuming that the police have some sort of bias problem, and now you 've got a five year 95 million dollar or 95 million record rather study confirming it. so'll we'll give you a link in the show notes, read through the study it's pretty if you 're into that type of shit, it 's fascinating. Uh, if you 're not into that type of shit, the results were still fascinating, but like the methodology and everything else, they had to go through and deduplicate records and make sure that they 've got valid data and everything. Uh, all that type of shit just really intrigues me. And the end result is that it confirms we got some serious problems in policing all over the country. Uh, Out of Reuters, this is a fantastic, emphasis on fantastic, special report on qualified immunity, this judge-made abomination that should be eliminated. And I'm going to read you a lot of quotes. It's an extended quote. It goes for roughly two pages of quotes because that is just how good this entire piece is. And even the two pages of quotes, the entire story is like 15 pages long. It is a long, deep read, complete with interactive graphics and everything else. I love it. You're going to love it. But from that report, it says, quote, "...staff at the local hospital in tiny Medill, Oklahoma, called the police in the early evening of March 24, 2011 for help giving Johnny Leja an injection to calm him. Security cameras captured much of the ensuing encounter." The officers, after shooting Leja with a stun gun, follow him down a corridor. They shock him again and wrestle him to the floor. One officer then straddles Leja's back, trying to handcuff him as the others struggle to pull back his arms. They get one handcuff on, but then Leja goes limp. The officers step back. Hospital staff drop to Leja's side and begin a futile effort to resuscitate him. The Oklahoma Chief Medical Examiner's Office determined that Leja, his lungs already compromised by pneumonia, was starved for oxygen in his struggle with the police and died from respiratory insufficiency. The county sheriff and the Medill Police Chief defended the officers' actions as appropriate to the situation. The cops were not charged with any wrongdoing. Irma Aldaba, however, blamed the officers for her son's death. Subquote, my son wasn't a criminal. He was sick, she said in an interview. So Aldaba took the only other route open to people in her situation. She sued. Her lawsuit in federal district court in Muskogee, Oklahoma, alleged that the three officers used excessive force, violating her son's civil rights under the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which protects against unreasonable search and seizure. But almost immediately, her case hit a formidable obstacle, a little-known legal doctrine called qualified immunity. This 50-year-old creation of the United States Supreme Court is meant to protect government employees from frivolous litigation. In recent years, however, it has become a highly effective shield in thousands of lawsuits seeking to hold cops accountable when they are accused of using excessive force. At first, it looked like El Daba would clear the hurdle. The judge hearing her case and then a federal appeals court Both rejected the officers' claims of qualified immunity. The appeals panel based its decision on a two-question test the courts used to weigh police requests for immunity. The first question is whether the evidence shows or could convince a jury that the officers used excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The second question is whether the officers should have known they were breaking clearly established law, a Supreme Court coinage for a court precedent that had already found similar police actions to have been illegal. So both of those questions, the court determined, the answer was yes. But then, at the officer's request, the United States Supreme Court intervened. The justices ordered the appeals court to reconsider its ruling, indicating that they disagreed with the lower court. Back at the appeals court, Aldaba's lawyer argued, just as he had the first time around, that the cop's treatment of Lasia was clearly established as illegal. To support his argument, he cited earlier cases in which police were held liable for using excessive force on unarmed, mentally compromised people. Not similar enough, the court now said, so the cops had no reason to think they were breaking the law. The police got immunity. Aldaba's case was dead." That is just the opening few paragraphs, because then, holy shit, it gets straight into the data, and it is amazing. I'm not going to quote from that, but I'm going to give you some examples. They get into the uh, 2009 Supreme Court ruling in Pearson v. Callahan. We've talked about that before, where prior to that case... The court had to consider both of those prongs: whether your rights were violated and whether that violation was clearly, whether the rights were clearly established. Well, then in 2009, the court said, "Ah, oh, you can do either one first; it's your choice." And what happened was that courts were instantly skipping the question as to whether or not your rights were violated, and instead focusing on whether or not the rights were clearly established at the time. This is where you get the morbid jokes that we always make on Twitter: that you know you were killed by a a cop during a day when it was 80 degrees and sunny in May, and therefore you get qualified immunity because it wasn't clearly established because the only other case on point was on a cloudy day in March, and therefore the killing is allowed. You know, we make those jokes on Twitter all the time because they're designed to be absurd, but that's what the qualified immunity doctrine has become. So Reuters notes in the data that out of all of the courts every single court that skips that first prong, whether or not someone's rights have been violated and they jump straight to the question as to whether or not it's clearly established, 100% of them, every single fucking one, has ruled in favor of police and given them qualified immunity. They also have data on excessive force cases, which is a subset of all the things that qualified immunity can apply to, and they found that rulings favoring police instantly spiked from 44% of all cases to 57% of all cases. The story picks up, quote, Reuters found among the cases it analyzed more than three dozen in which qualified immunity protected officers whose actions had already been deemed unlawful. Outside of Dallas, Texas, five officers fired 17 shots at a bicyclist who was 100 yards away, killing him in a case of mistaken identity. In Heber City, Utah, an officer threw to the ground an unarmed man he had pulled over for a cracked windshield, leaving the man with brain damage. In Prince George's County, Maryland, an officer shot a man in a mental health crisis who was stabbing himself and trying to slit his own throat. The Reuters analysis supports Justice Sotomayor's assertion that the Supreme Court has built qualified immunity into an often insurmountable police defense by intervening in cases mostly to favor the police. Over the past 15 years, the high court took up 12 appeals of qualified immunity decisions from police, but only three from plaintiffs, even though plaintiffs asked the court to review nearly as many cases as the police did. The court's acceptance rate for police appeals seeking immunity was three times its average acceptance rate for all appeals overall. For plaintiff's appeals, the acceptance rate was below the court's average. And in those cases it accepts, the court nearly always decides in favor of police. The high court has also put its thumb on the scale by repeatedly tweaking the process. It has allowed police to request immunity before all evidence has been presented. And if police are denied immunity, they can appeal immediately, an option unavailable to most other litigants who typically must wait until after a final judgment to appeal. Subquote, you get the impression that the officers are always supposed to win and the plaintiffs are always supposed to lose, University of Chicago law professor William Baud said. In his research, Baud has found that qualified immunity as a doctrine enjoys what he calls privileged status on the Supreme Court, which extends to cases the court decides without even hearing arguments, a relatively rare occurrence. In such cases, the court disproportionately reversed lower court's denials of immunity. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. It is a very long read. It is a brutal fucking read. But they excellently go through every aspect of qualified immunity, how it is a bullshit doctrine created from fucking scratch by judges with no legislative support to do it, and that they keep expanding it over time to give police more and more protection ...from the consequences of their own bad decisions. Qualified immunity needs to be abolished, and it's going to have to be done by legislative branches. So we'll give you a link so you can read it. Uh, That's it for the research stuff. In the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, you have a lot of appearances of both the first and third rules of Fisk today. And in one third rule situation, we've got multiple stories in the exact same fucking episode, just in different jurisdictions. Uh, So we'll start in California. In Los Angeles, the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, The Los Angeles Police Department announced an investigation Monday after footage surfaced online of a uniformed officer repeatedly striking a man during an encounter in Boyle Heights. The incident happened on April 27th in the 2400 block of Houston Street near Soto Street, according to the police department. A video apparently recorded by a bystander from across the street shows two LAPD officers, one male and one female, detaining a man on a sidewalk by a church. An initial verbal exchange between the man and the male officer is unclear, but the officer begins striking the civilian at least nine times in the head from behind while screaming expletives. The man crouched down as he asked the officer, subquote, what is wrong with you? The attack lasts about 20 seconds, video shows. The female officer at first stood behind, but then apparently places her hand on her partner's arm before he could throw another punch. A member of the community provided a cell phone recording of the exchange to a supervising uh, officer, LAPD, said. A review of that footage, as well as police body cam video, prompted an internal investigation. The agency said it has also notified the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, which will monitor the internal probe. LAPD did not release the identity of the officer or the civilian involved. A reminder to record everything, because, of course, the video actually looks worse than the write-up. Uh, Also in Los Angeles, you got police trying to kill each other. From that story, it says, quote, A Los Angeles police officer was charged Tuesday with assault with a deadly weapon after San Bernardino County prosecutors say he shot another off-duty officer over the weekend while the two were camping in Apple Valley. Officer Ishmael Tomeo, 44, a 13-year veteran of the LAPD, was arrested on suspicion of attempted murder in connection with the late-night shooting at the Stoddard Wells off-highway vehicle area that wounded a colleague. But the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office on Tuesday instead filed a lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon against Tomeo, an Ontario resident. The filing identified the victim as Mark Mascareno, 48, a fellow officer in the LAPD's Newton Division. According to the DA's charges, Tomeo used a Glock 40 caliber handgun in the commission of a serious and violent felony that resulted in great bodily injury. Multiple law enforcement sources who asked not to be identified because they were not authorized to discuss the incident said three officers were camping, shooting their weapons, and drinking alcohol in the hours before Mascareno was wounded. In addition to how the shooting occurred, the—oh, uh, I should have put his name in here— There's a guy whose last name is Moore. I think he's the uh, chief of police, but I don't have that in my notes. Fuck me. This is what happens when you try and condense down news stories for audio. Uh, Moore said he wants to know why the officers were at the campground during the state's stay-at-home order amid the coronavirus pandemic. The area appeared to be open to the public, and other campers were nearby, according to a preliminary investigation. So you've got officers violating a stay-at-home order, going out camping, getting shit-faced, and then trying to kill each other And these are the folks we expect to protect and serve the public. Uh, Over in Rancho Cordova, California, we have the first rule of Fisk again. In this case, a grown white police officer beating the everlasting shit out of a 14-year-old boy on camera uh, for the heinous, heinous crime of possessing a cigarette. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, On Tuesday... Former presidential candidates Julian Castro and Senator Kamala Harris brought national attention to a video filmed Monday of a police officer in Rancho Cordova, California, brutally assaulting a 14-year-old boy over the underage purchase of a Swisher cigar. I got to say, try saying that five times fast, a Swisher cigar. Uh, The footage of Elijah Tofono's beating itself is almost too horrifying to watch. For further footage posted on social media by Tofono's sister shows the child identifying himself to the officer as a 14-year-old, the officer punching him repeatedly, and the child screaming as the officer pins his head to the pavement. The Rancho Cordova Police Department issued a statement on Tuesday defending the officer's behavior and suggesting the teenager had it coming. Now, normally, I don't read the bullshit that police put out because we've covered many times about how the initial narrative is bullshit designed to tamp down media covering it. And it turns out months later that, in fact, this shit was entirely outrageous. But this this statement is just utterly fucking ridiculous. So here's the police statement. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. It says, quote, It's important to put video footage into context, especially in relation to a use of force incident. In this case, the deputy saw what he believed to be a hand to hand exchange between an adult and a juvenile. As the deputy turned around, he lost sight of the adult who left the area. When the deputy approached the juvenile, the juvenile was uncooperative and refused to give the deputy basic identifying information. He told the deputy he was 18 years old. Having reasonable suspicion that criminal activity was occurring, the deputy attempted to detain the juvenile so he could conduct further investigation. The juvenile became physically resistive at that time, causing the deputy to lose control of his handcuffs, which landed several feet away. The deputy attempted to maintain control of the juvenile without his handcuffs and while alone, waiting for his partners to arrive and assist him. Ultimately, the deputy recovered tobacco products from the 14-year-old juvenile, which is presumably the reason for his resistance. The juvenile was cited and released to his guardians. Now, ponder for a fucking minute the extent of the bullshit that is buried within that statement. Okay, one, this notion of context. You want to put this shit in context? The context is right there, plain as day, in the fucking video. It would be inappropriate to beat the shit out of a 14 year old if he had weed, which is what the officer thought he saw. And you know what? It's inappropriate to do when he has a cigar, too. It doesn't fucking matter. Either way, it's inappropriate. Second, how are you as a grown ass man unable to maintain your handcuffs when you're trying to deal with the juvenile? Third, why did you lose sight of the adult? If the adult is the one selling it, shouldn't he be the one you go after? Lose sight of the juvenile while you go after the adult instead. There's a whole litany of bullshit buried in that fucking statement. But again, like with the earlier story out of Los Angeles, a reminder to record fucking everything. Because you never know what kind of bullshit these police will do and get away with by issuing these stupid fucking statements when the video directly fucking contradicts it. Uh, So that's in California, over in Colorado, in Denver, we again have an appearance of the first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they are being recorded, and in this case, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to say here, so this guy was an idiot, he absolutely was an idiot, but it does not deserve the complete and total brutal beating that he got, because Jesus, fuck, the pictures are just uh, traumatizing. Uh, so from that story, it says, quote, the words of a Denver police officer caught on body cam may come back to haunt him if Justin LeCheminant's lawsuit, I'm probably fucking up his name if he listens, I apologize, uh, if his lawsuit ever goes before a jury. Shortly after LeCheminant was handcuffed following a physical encounter with Officer Robert Blanc, Blanc can be heard telling LeCheminant, subquote, this is what you get when you elude police, dude, Photos of Le Cheminette's facial injuries are included in a federal lawsuit the 42-year-old filed Tuesday morning against the city and county of Denver and four members of the Denver Police Department, Detective Mark Duran, Sergeant Troy Sandoval, Corporal Daniel Falcons, and Officer Robert Blanc. It's Blanc who the lawsuit accuses of repeatedly punching Le Cheminette after tasing him twice. Uh, so basically, the moral of the story is the guy was pulled over because his lights were not turned on. He had a bottle of tequila in the car that hadn't been opened yet, but it prompted the officer to ask if he had been drinking. The guy said no. Officer says, step out of the car. The guy drives off. And then the body cam picks up at the guy's home where he's in the driveway. And police just fucking maul this guy. The the pictures are just just astonishing. We'll give you a link, but it's it's impressive how fucked up he was. The fact he didn't die. His eyes were so swollen that he physically couldn't open them. Uh, from the story continues quote: The cheminette's injuries included a broken nose, a concussion, a punctured eardrum, and four broken ribs. After Le Cheminet was handcuffed, Blanc can be heard saying, this is what happens when you loot police dude. Police arrested Le Cheminet for assaulting an officer, but the Denver district attorney dismissed the charges. Uh, So we'll give you a link to that. That was in Colorado. Over in Connecticut, we have a situation with the prisons here where they're putting people who have the coronavirus into solitary confinement, but then banning them from uh, bathing or otherwise cleaning their cells. From that story, it says, quote, Connecticut prisoners who test positive for the novel coronavirus may be sent to a maximum security prison where they will be isolated in their cells and forbidden from taking showers, according to the State Department of Corrections orientation notice for incarcerated patients. Fourteen days after the onset of symptoms, prisoners will be considered for release. So, I feel like they're punishing us for having COVID 19, said Christopher Russell, a prisoner who was transferred to Northern Correctional Institution in a statement submitted as part of a lawsuit against the governor and Department of Corrections Commissioner. Russell was moved to the facility after he began exhibiting symptoms, but was tested once he arrived. He said he was permitted out of his cell for 30 minutes a day to make two phone calls. His cell was freezing cold and it made it difficult to breathe. Subquote, there's toilet paper with urine on it on the floor of my cell, he said. It looks like the cells have not been cleaned in quite some time. Medical professionals and civil rights attorneys have condemned the practice of sending people with COVID 19 to Northern, which, according to the Department of Correction website, is subquote, designated to manage those inmates who have demonstrated a serious inability to adjust to confinement, posing a threat to the safety and security of the community, staff, and other inmates. Prisoners at Northern are confined to a concrete cell, which measures 7 feet by 12 feet, according to the state's ACLU affiliate. People who test positive for the virus, both pre-sentenced and sentenced, are moved to a medical isolation unit at Northern for the purposes of receiving centralized medical care, according to Department of Corrections spokesperson Andreas Benevicius, B-A-N-E-V-I-C-I-U-S, Benevicius, vicious, I don't know. Anyhow, whoever their spokesperson is. Uh, Story continues. Quote, as of May 7th, there are 97 people with COVID-19 at Northern's Isolation Unit. According to the Department of Correction website, a total of 484 prisoners have contracted the virus. It does not state the total number of people who have been tested. Six Connecticut prisoners have also died of COVID-19. Uh, So that's in Connecticut, a reminder that how we treat inmates in this country is an abomination, and this pandemic is making that painfully clear. Uh, Over in Georgia, in Macon, police get immunity again for continuing to fuck people over. From that story, and let me back up, you've probably heard of this. This was the roadside meth that actually was cotton candy, the story goes, quote, a Macon woman now knows how much money she will get for being wrongly jailed over a false positive field test, 0 dollars. Dasha Fincher 43 sued the Monroe County Sheriff's Office and others over her arrest on New Year's Eve of 2016. Deputies used a disposable field test kit to examine a clump of blue material they found in a bag in the car. Fincher and her boyfriend David Morris allowed the search. Deputies originally pulled them over because they thought the car window tinting was too dark. It was not. Fincher told deputies the blue material was cotton candy, but deputies decided to run the test kit, and it showed a positive reading for methamphetamines. Morris had a prior conviction for trafficking in meth. Fincher had served three years probation on a marijuana charge. Deputies found no other evidence of drug use in their car, but arrested them anyway. Fincher and Morris would spend the next 94 days in the Monroe County Jail unable to make a $1 million cash bond that was set that high because of the amount of suspected meth. She would miss the birth of her twin grandsons. The charges were finally dropped when the GBI crime lab determined the sample was not a controlled substance. It was cotton candy. Federal Judge Tillman self, nonetheless, dismissed Fincher's lawsuit, writing, subquote, without a doubt, plaintiffs should have never spent 94 days in jail. And while the court certainly emphasizes with her, it nonetheless must follow the requisite law. He said because Monroe County deputies assumed the test kits gave them accurate readings, they have immunity protection from her lawsuit. Here's the thing. These roadside test kits cannot, you know, you don't have a situation where if it's positive, you know it's positive. That's not how they work. We've, we've gone over Bayes' theorem and everything else. If it's negative, you're not going to get a false negative. You can use it to rule out it being something illegal. But if it's positive, it doesn't mean go arrest people and throw them in fucking jail forever. It means you got to get a different test. you got to actually get a reliable test to figure out what the fuck it is. Uh, so that is in Georgia. It Just as a note, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the Ahmad Arbery thing because there's just been so much bullshit about that case and it makes my fucking blood boil you have this guy got murdered back in february and the guy who did it and his son the guy is a retired cop who was an investigator for the da's office so the first da didn't prosecute recuse themselves because they had worked together second da comes in and says there's no basis to charge The public is getting agitated about it, so he recuses himself. But before he does, he writes this long-ass fucking letter that is the type of thing you'd expect to see from a defense attorney saying, oh, you know, this guy was suspected of crimes and this was all part of affecting a citizen's arrest and blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm not a Georgia lawyer, but I went through and read some of the Georgia statutes. Turns out, in Georgia, if you try and do a citizen's arrest, you can't do it for felonies, which is supposedly what he is allegedly, you know, Suspected of, even though we found out later he actually wasn't. And then, not only that, you don't get to use deadly force to do it. So, this DA wrote this letter of pure unadulterated bullshit, led to a third district attorney to come in in response to the public backlash. While this is all going on, a defense attorney who consulted with the murderers decided to release video because a third co-conspirator, a guy who was helping the murderers kill this guy, fucking recorded it on his goddamn cell phone because he thought it would be cool. And the defense attorney released the video to the media because he thought it would calm things down. He thought it would settle it. He looked at this homicide on video and said, you know what? This is exactly what the fuck we need to point out that these guys were innocent by Jove. And then what ended up happening is all of us saw the fucking video, saw a fucking snuff film where the guy is murdered in front of our eyes. And now these two people are finally charged with murder. But now the third DA is fucking recusing himself. He's bringing in a fourth DA. I, I don't know what the fuck is going on. So, you know, that, that, that's the extent of my comment on it. But this has been an ongoing, repetitive thing on this podcast for years now where people of color just get fucking blown away by white folks, cops or not cops, and we go out of our way to make up excuses for why that's totally okay and fine. And it's only because this dumbass attorney in Georgia released this video that anything has changed. Cops already had the video. But no one leaked it. It wasn't until this defense attorney leaked it that we all realized how utterly fucking ridiculous this whole situation is. And now finally these guys are going to be prosecuted. Wake me when they get a conviction. But I suppose small steps are progress. Um, but keep an eye on that story because that story is fucking bonkers. And I realize I've already talked about it more than I should have. Um, but it's just one of those things where it's just it, there's been so much that has gone on since the the execution in February that I struggled to make sense of it all. And it's really a sign of a very deep, deep rot in the uh, prosecutorial apparatus down in Georgia. Uh, So hopping states over to Indiana in Jasper County, a former judge uh, who went into private practice is now facing bar discipline for ripping off old folks. From that story, it says, quote, A one time Jasper County judge is accused of multiple counts of attorney misconduct related to his representation of two elderly clients' estates, potentially involving the misappropriation of hundreds of thousands of dollars to his law firm, an office employee, and a family member after the clients had died. Attorney Robert V. Monfort of Monon is accused in Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission complaint of engaging in criminal acts and, subquote, conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, among a litany of other ethical charges the commission filed on April 27th. Monfort has not been criminally charged, but authorities and people familiar with the matter confirmed to the Indiana lawyer, which is the publication here, uh, that a criminal investigation is ongoing. Monfort did not reply to a message from IL seeking comment. Indianapolis attorney Margaret Christensen replied on his behalf, saying in an email that Monfort declines comment at this time. A criminal referral has been made, and Indiana State Police appear to be investigating. Sergeant Glenn Fifield, public information officer for the ISP, post in Lowell, said in an email seeking comment about the Monfort case, subquote, we are conducting an investigation in Jasper County. It is the policy of the Indiana State Police not to identify suspects in criminal investigations unless or until criminal charges are filed by the local prosecutor. Uh, basically, this guy took the estate money and started paying it to himself. Uh, he didn't you know, notice, no one noticed anything was going wrong until several nonprofits who were expecting bequests Uh, didn't get their money and they're like, hey, what the fuck is going on? And they realized this guy ripped everyone off. So just bear in mind, uh, I have infinite respect for people who are judges. But if someone's going to do this when they're off the bench, they never should have been on the bench in the first place. Uh, So that is in Indiana, in Kentucky, in Louisville, we have our first of several references to the third rule of Fisk. Again, the third rule is that there are no new stories, just new names and new jurisdictions. Uh, So you might recall back in episode 76 where police in Pennsylvania killed a guy over weed when a suspect was already in custody at the time. Uh, episode ninety eight in Alabama, where they shot and killed a woman when they were looking for someone else who was already in custody at the time. Uh, they fucked up again in Louisville now, and in this time, they killed a nurse, an EMT. From that story, it says, "Quote: The union representing Louisville Metro police officers lashed out at a local judge Friday." For releasing from jail an inmate who allegedly shot a police officer earlier this month, calling the action, subquote, a slap in the face to everyone wearing a badge. Now, I'm going to pause. I I didn't want to spill all the beans on the entire story. But listen to how this reads and then think back in your mind to other Stand Your Ground type cases, Castle Doctrine cases, where people have raided a home and been blown away. Uh, story continues, quote, but an attorney for Kenneth Walker claims police conducted an improper raid, which led to officers shooting an innocent woman eight times, killing her. The woman, 26-year-old Brianna Taylor, was a certified EMT working at two local hospitals. Defense attorney Rob Eggert said police burst into Taylor's home without announcing their presence and fired at least 22 times, with bullets going into neighboring apartments and subquote it was incredible that mrs taylor was the only one killed an attorney representing the family sam aguiar said police were actually looking for someone else and other officers had picked the suspect up at his home in a separate raid before the shooting subquote something went terribly wrong this was clearly a botched execution of a warrant aguiar said in an email, Chief Steve Conrad said he could not talk about the so quote incident that resulted in Miss Taylor's death like this is just a passive fucking thing uh, because there is a pending public integrity investigation. Walker, who is 27, dating Taylor, was charged with attempted murder of a police officer after he shot Sergeant John Manningly in the leg as police were serving a search warrant during a narcotics investigation at the apartment. But Walker's attorney, Eggert, claims police did not announce themselves as they exploded through the door of the apartment at 1 a.m. while the couple was sleeping. Eggert acknowledges that Walker fired a shot, hitting Sergeant Manningly in the leg, but claims Walker did not know he was shooting at police. Police then returned fire, killing Taylor. There were no drugs found in the home. And Walker was not even the target of the search warrant. And if he had known police were outside, he would have let them in, Eggert said to the court. Police have said they repeatedly knocked on the door and announced their presence, but were eventually forced to bust through where they were met with the gunfire. However, a woman who lives next door said she woke up to the sounds of the gunshot and Walker yelling for help, according to an affidavit filed with the court. She also said she never heard police announce themselves. Here's the kicker. This is going to come to you as a shock. Quote, police have said there is no body camera footage of the shooting because the officers involved were members of the department's criminal interdiction division who do not wear body cameras. So you have a group of people who are so fucking incompetent, they don't know that the guy they're looking for has already been arrested. They go to an apartment at one in the morning and break in without announcing themselves. They end up getting shot at because, guess what, you know, you can stand your ground when someone happens to invade your home. That's normally what happens. People break in late at night. You get to shoot them. Welcome to America. But then they kill a nurse in the midst of returning fire as they're shooting into neighboring apartments because they don't have fucking muzzle control. I don't know. And then because one of them happens to have gotten hit as they are busy violating all sorts of laws, they charge the guy who shot them with attempt to murder. And none of this shit is on camera. They don't record any of it. We're just supposed to take their word at what happened. All I know from this is that they're really fucking incompetent. I'm not inclined to take their word on any goddamn thing. But that is the Louisville Metro Police Department in Kentucky. Down in Louisiana, New Orleans. Louisiana, of course, you'll recall, is the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck criminal justice. Well, it turns out that they're now having inmates do the uh, sanitation work because of a strike. So down in Orleans story says, quote, sanitation workers aren't used to being on the back of pickup trucks, but that's where some were Friday after they were fired for making four demands. so quote, we need them to provide us with proper PPE, it's personal protective equipment, to all the workers immediately and consistency, consistently and on a daily basis said Jonathan Edward, one of the workers who lost his job. Subquote, provide us with our hazard pay due to the pandemic. Workers who said they were fired earlier in the week after voicing their concerns are also asking for broken trucks to be fixed and an increase in their hourly rate. And so they hopped onto the backs of trucks, drove through Lakeview to pass out flyers with their demands and concerns. Metro Disposal, which collects trash from properties in Orleans Parish north of Interstate 10, contracts with People Ready, which hires the workers, People Ready on Friday did not respond to a request for comment, but meanwhile, Livingston Parish work-release inmates, those convicted of nonviolent crimes, were on the Metro Trucks Friday to collect garbage. So we're having inmates uh, do the work because... You know, the private people are striking because they don't want to get exposed to coronavirus. But we figure you're in jail. Fuck it. We'll expose you. No problem. Uh, in Maryland, we have a rare appearance of the fourth rule of Fisk. Remember, the fourth rule is that The Wire was a documentary. In Baltimore, story says, quote, the Maryland attorney general's office. It's just, I shouldn't laugh, but this is fucking funny. The Maryland Attorney General's office has signaled that a fifth murder trial is likely in the controversial case of Keith Davis Jr., the man who was shot by police in 2015 and was later convicted of killing a Pimlico Racecourse security guard. The disclosure came from Davis' public defender, who read from pleadings filed by the attorney general's office at a bail review hearing Wednesday morning. Davis' appeal is still pending. Subquote, the state agrees with Mr. Davis that it appears he is likely to succeed in obtaining a new trial in this appeal. The attorney told Circuit Court Judge Philip Jackson, quoting the pleading, the attorney asked that Davis be released from custody to avoid exposure to COVID-19 and pointed to the prospect of a new trial as one of the supporting reasons. Walking through Davis's increased vulnerability to coronavirus due to his asthma, the attorney asked Judge Jackson, "What if he dies before he is vindicated?" But Assistant State's Attorney Patrick Seidel did not dispute the characterization of the Attorney General Office's comments. He nonetheless called the issue a, subquote, technicality, and that Davis would be tried again on evidence he considers to be strong. Subquote, the remedy if the conviction is overturned is not that the defendant gets to go home, it's that we're going to try him again, Seidel said. Mr. Davis belongs in jail for what he did. Davis has maintained his innocence through five different trials. The first when he was charged with an armed robbery in the incident in which he was shot by police in June 2015. He was acquitted of that robbery, but convicted of a gun charge. Police then charged him with the murder of the security guard, who was killed the night before Davis himself was shot by police. Davis's four murder trials played out like this. The first one was a hung jury. The second one was a conviction that was overturned on appeal. The third one was another hung jury. The fourth one was another conviction, now likely to be overturned on appeal. And the story goes from there. Look, at some point, the government's got to get its shit together. If you cannot get a unanimous jury to convict on two separate occasions, and then on the two occasions where you pull it off, you have somehow fucked up that the guy's getting a new trial at some point, he gets to go home. That's how that works. The government doesn't get to keep taking bites at the apple in the hopes that one day it will not fuck up. The whole point of having prosecutors is that you, you don't fuck up. That's what we pay you to do. We pay you to not fuck up, to prosecute people without fucking up. To do that five times is impressive, impressively incompetent. The Wire was a documentary. Over in Massachusetts, in Springfield, from our uh, perennial entries in Working for the Government Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry... From that story, it says, quote, the Springfield chapter of the NAACP has denounced Police Commissioner Shill Claproot's reinstatement of five officers involved in the Nathan Bill's brawl and called for the five to be resuspended. Chapter President Bishop Talbert Swan said in a press release Friday that the chapter's members, subquote, are incredulous at the brazen manner in which five indicted officers were put back on the streets of our city without regard for the community, consideration for ethical practices, regard for the law, or basic common sense and decency. Chief Claprood defended her decision Thursday before the city council, with some counselors saying reinstatement sent, subquote, the wrong message. The officers were indicted last year on charges they helped cover up the involvement of off duty police officers in a large scale brawl outside the East Force Park bar, Nathan Bills, in 2015. Reinstating them last month, Claproud said the department needed more manpower during the coronavirus pandemic and that the suspended officers were, subquote, in need of work. However, the state attorney general and members of the FBI disagreed with giving the officers back their weapons, saying the five cops legally cannot be armed while they are under indictment. Claproot on May 1st disarmed the officers, shifting them to desk duty. What the fuck are the police doing during a pandemic anyway? The idea that there's more police activity... Is wrong. Certain types of crimes are going up, but the vast majority of all crimes are going down because a lot of people are staying the fuck home. The notion that you need additional personnel to deal with the pandemic is silly. And to have these five, you can find five fucking high school graduates who are willing to go through basic training or the police academy, be let, whatever the fuck you want to call it you know the idea that you got to bring back people that are documented indicted for having lied about a uh, situation and trying to cover it up just an abject failure of leadership by the uh, police commissioner up in Massachusetts uh, over in Minnesota this is a this is a weird situation so we have the fifth rule of fisk and the fifth rule is that when people say blue lives matter they don't mean the dark blue ones and we've talked in many different episodes about Officer Mohammed Noor, the killer cop who executed a uh, young lady who had called police. The police showed up. She supposedly tapped on their police car, and Officer Noor so feared for his life that he shot across his partner because he was in the passenger seat, through the window, killed her. Well, he ended up being convicted. Well, now that he's on appeal from that conviction... Normally, the media would get information about the jurors, but the judge has been repeatedly sealing the information to avoid it from coming out, saying it's to protect the integrity of the trial and the officer or whatever else in the process, violating his Sixth Amendment right to get access to this information for his appeal. So I don't know if this is a fifth rule situation or not, because the judge is hemming and hawing like it's to protect the officer, But in the process, she's denying the officer from getting stuff he wants because if she gives it to him, she would have to give it to the media as well. It's it's very weird. So from the story, it says, "Quote the Hennepin County judge who sealed jury information in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor repeatedly expressed concerns at a hearing on Wednesday about the media potentially asking jurors about their deliberations." Hennepin County District Judge Catherine Quaintance, who presided over Noor's trial, raised the issue at a hearing to address a motion filed by the Minneapolis Star Tribune to unseal jurors' names, jury questionnaires, and other related information that is typically made public after a trial ends. Quaintance has issued five orders since Noor's April 30, 2019 conviction to seal juror names and information, citing high interest in the case among the media and public and the possible harassment of jurors. The fifth order was just filed in April. Quaintance asked attorney Lada Walker, who is representing the Star Tribune, whether she would concede that any media conversations with jurors would avoid talks about their deliberations. No, Walker said. quote, this kind of thing can interfere with the administration of Justice, the judge responded. The media's interest, Walker said, is to understand the jurors and the verdict. Subquote, the press's role is to be a watchdog on the administration of justice, adding that it was, subquote, vitally important to our democracy. Jurors convicted Nor of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter for fatally shooting Justine Rusick-Diamond. They acquitted him of second-degree murder. Noor, 34, was responding to Diamond's 911 call—I'm sorry, it's Damon, I don't know where I was throwing that I in there—to Damon's 911 call about a possible sexual assault behind her South Minneapolis home on July 15, 2017, when he shot Damon, 40, from the passenger seat of his police SUV. Quaintance noted that Noor's conviction is on appeal and called discussing jury deliberations a, subquote, very, very dangerous area. But guess what? That's the type of shit that comes up on appeal. If the jury was deliberating and stuff that should not have been discussed was discussed, like, you know, his race or his religion, that's a basis for a new trial. So it's weird to me. And the notion of discussing deliberations being a problem, you don't get the same jurors if he's retried a second time. You impanel a new jury. So I don't know what the fuck is going on here. Minneapolis is is very weird and, uh, you know we've got some reporters up there that I've been relying on for the stories I follow them on twitter and i uh, i you know read their stuff regularly and I can't make hide nor hair of what the fuck people are thinking on, on some of the stuff. It's just super weird to me. Uh, so that's in Minneapolis, in uh, Rock County. We have the first rule of Fisk, and really the third rule too. You know, you had a roadside rape of a car passenger over in Air Freshener, and now that is the subject of a lawsuit. From that story, it says, "quote A lawsuit from the American Civil Liberties Union alleges two Southern Minnesota sheriff's deputies illegally conducted a cavity search on a woman on the side of the road in below freezing temperatures, ignoring." her pleas to be taken to the hospital or police station and searched, subquote, the right way. During the 2018 incident, Kelly Joe Torres, 38, asked the Rock County deputies 25 different times to stop trying to reach into her vagina, according to the lawsuit. The deputies kept her outside without a coat in nine-degree weather along an interstate on-ramp for a half hour before taking her to a hospital to complete the cavity search. That's fucking cold. You know, I go out and walk the dog, and a lot of these mornings this past week, it's been like low 40s, and I'm, I'm it's fucking chilly. I mean, I'm wearing shorts and pants over the shorts and a, a shirt and a jacket and a peacoat over the jacket, and I'm still cold. So to be in 9-degree weather laying on the side of the road for 30 minutes, Jesus. Uh, on November 27th, 2018, Torres was a passenger in a car traveling through Luverne, Minnesota. Deputies pulled the vehicle over, citing an air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. I didn't know that was a crime. I used to have one of those on my rearview for a long time. I got a parking decal over it now uh, on I 90, on an I 90 on ramp. Deputy Dallas Ham asked the driver Derek White where they were heading. White said they just dropped off another passenger in the area. The deputies asked White to step out of the car and, according to the lawsuit, illegally searched White, finding a small amount of drugs in the brim of his hat. Ham ordered Torres to exit the vehicle for a search, asking her to leave her coat in the car. While Ham watched, his partner, Shelly Dowdy, began an invasive search of Torres. In the incident captured on squad car dash video, Torres told the deputy she was cold and she was not wearing any underwear and that, subquote, it feels like you're grabbing my crotch. The deputy said they felt what they thought was a baggie in her vagina. Torres told the officer she would gladly cooperate if they take her to the station or to a hospital. Subquote, she don't feel a baggie in my crotch, but if we go down there, then she can search me. Whatever, I can squat and cough and get undressed the right way, you know, like instead of on the side of the highway. The footage shows Torres repeatedly asking the officer not to touch her vagina, but the deputies refused her request and blamed her for making them stay out in the cold. If you're digging in a woman's vagina for 30 minutes in nine degree weather, you got fucking problems. I don't care if you're a male deputy, a female deputy, whatever, you got some fucking problems. Uh, So that was in Minnesota. In New Jersey, we have the first rule making an appearance in Jersey City. First rule of Fisk police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, footage from a street fight on Tuesday afternoon shows a Jersey City police officer who is white repeatedly hitting a man who is African-American while he is pinned on the ground. And now activists are calling for the cops to be fired. The clip filmed by a witness captured the man trying to raise his arms to protect his face as the law enforcement officer strikes him over and over again. According to activists who shared details of the incident, about 20 cops showed up on the scene on Bostwick Avenue. The men had been involved in an altercation prior to their arrival after a 5.15 p.m. call. The entire incident lasted 10 minutes, and police estimated 100 people were involved. Footage released by the Hudson County Prosecutor's Office showed the fight before it escalated to police using force. The police said body cam footage will be reviewed as part of an investigation into the incident by the HCPO. However, the officers are not being investigated. Six officers initially arrived, but police could not initially confirm how many ended up there. I'm going to note, in the video that's been released, there's like 20 of them. There's a shitload of fucking police beating the shit out of a lot of people. It's unclear exactly what happened before the police started using batons on the group. One person tweeted about the cops, many of whom were not wearing face coverings amid the coronavirus pandemic. Subquote, Jersey City police beating up black people for not social distancing. The irony is that they're not social distancing either. Another tweeted, subquote, I'm all for social distancing. But why is it when white people crowd like sardines into state houses with no masks and long guns, white cops do nothing? But when black people stand too close, white cops beat the shit out of them. Questions that need answers. That's in New Jersey. In New York, we have the uh, third rule again. And this is the one where we got two third rules in the same episode on the same topic. Uh, third rule of Fisk, there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From that story, it says, quote, A police officer enforcing social distancing rules broke up a group of people on a stoop during a nighttime cookout in East New York, Brooklyn, punching one man in the face. Another dispute between officers and residents of the same predominantly black neighborhood over the guidelines led to a man being knocked unconscious. Days later, three men were arrested after taking part in a sprawling vigil at the Queensbridge houses for a rapper who was said to have died of the coronavirus. Tensions are increasingly flaring in black and Hispanic neighborhoods over officers' enforcement of social distancing rules, leading some prominent elected officials to charge the New York Police Department is engaging in a racist double standard as it struggles to shift to a public health role in the coronavirus. Coronavirus crisis. The arrests of black and Hispanic residents, several of them filmed and posted online, occurred on the same balmy days that other photographs circulated showing police officers handing out masks to mostly white visitors at parks in Lower Manhattan, Williamsburg, and Long Island City. Video captured crowds of sunbathers, many without masks, sitting close together at a park on a Manhattan pier, uninterrupted by the police. On Thursday night, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office became the first prosecutor in the city to release statistics on social distancing enforcement. In the borough, the police arrested 40 people for social distancing violations from March 17th through May 4th, the DA's office said. Of those arrested, now again, remember there are 40 people arrested here, 35 were black, Four were Hispanic, and one was white. More than a third of the arrests were made in the predominantly black neighborhood of Brownsville. No arrests were made in the more white Brooklyn neighborhood of Park Slope. That's why, is that 98%, 99%? I don't know. It's basically an absurd percentage, and it gets back to this whole notion that we use laws to enforce a racial caste system in this country while we try and pretend that we are all equal under the law. We are not. So bear that in mind, and keep in mind, this is New York City, where Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's as borderline communist as you're going to get among your normal elected officials, uh, he's been all on board with this shit too. It's his police department that's doing it, and he's either powerless to stop it or he's okay with it. I'll let you take your pick. Uh, Over in North Carolina, we have got this this crazy fucking story of a sheriff's deputy leading a bona fide lynch mob down in Rocky Point on the coast. From that story, it says, quote, Damon Shepard, a high school senior in North Carolina, was at home playing video games when a large group of people with guns, including a sheriff's deputy, reportedly knocked on his door. Shepard is black. The group was entirely white. They were looking for a teenage girl who'd gone missing and mistakenly believed that Shepard was a different person who knew her, according to James W. Lee, who is preparing to file a civil lawsuit on the family's behalf, according to the Port City Daily newspaper. Now, two people are facing criminal charges. Jordan Keita, a detention officer with the New Hanover Sheriff's Office, is charged with misdemeanor breaking or entering, forcible trespassing, and willful failure to discharge duties, District Attorney Ben David said during a press conference Friday that was live-streamed on Facebook by TV station WECT. Keita has since been fired, according to a statement David read from the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office. The former deputy is accused of going to Shepard's home, subquote, while well armed and in uniform in a county where he was not due. Sworn in and in furtherance of personal, not law enforcement purposes, David said. A second man, Austin Wood, also faces charges for subquote, going armed to the terror of the public, which bars North Carolina citizens from arming themselves, subquote, for the purpose of terrorizing others. Port City Daily reported the incident occurred May 3rd, around 10 o'clock P.M., citing the letter Lee penned to David Cutler and New Hanover County Sheriff Ed McMahon on Thursday. Keita and two other individuals were armed with the assault weapon and shotgun when they arrived at Shepard's house. The group was reportedly looking for Lakata Kempisty, a 15-year-old girl who was reported missing earlier that day, who was found later safe. During the altercation, Lee said Keita put his foot in the door to stop Shepard from closing it and demanded that he be let in. The individual the group was looking for was named Josiah, according to the letter, and he used to live next door. Port City Daily reported the neighborhood is, subquote, predominantly white, and, subquote, the Shepherds are one of only two black families who live there. And I'm going to note, you can see it in the pictures, there was a sign out front in the yard That said, Congratulations, Damon, because he had just graduated high school. They should have known Josiah wasn't fucking there. Uh, Quote continues Someone in the neighborhood reportedly called law enforcement, prompting two deputies with the Pender County Sheriff's Office to arrive on the scene, followed shortly thereafter by their captain. Now, listen to this next part closely. Subquote, during this period of time, the deputies made no arrests, took no names of the individuals who were at the Shepherd residence, and conducted no investigation, the attorney's letter to the district attorney says. In the letter, Lee said Damon Shepard's mother, Monica Shepherd, was awoken by the confrontation and told the group they had the wrong person and should leave. Subquote, coming to the door like that with a mob of people with guns, what do we expect? What were their intentions? Monica Shepard told WECT. What if he was the person they were looking for? Or what if I was not home? What would have happened? I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want my son to be a statistic. It's scary. No shit. That shit is wild. We have lynch mobs running around North Carolina in the year of our Lord, 2020. What the fuck? Really need people to do something about white domestic terrorism in this country. Uh, Also, in non-criminal justice fuckery, but also here in North Carolina, we have still more UNC scandals. Now, those of you that follow me on Twitter know I used to be on our system, Board of Governors, many years ago. And in recent months, since November, uh, I've had the misfortune of being embroiled in a handful of scandalous bullshit. So you had out in East Carolina in Greenville, uh, Dan Gerlach, the former chancellor, on video where he's stumbling around downtown drunk off his ass, gets in his car and drives away. A journalist sent me pictures of that video and allowed me to upload it to Twitter because they were asking if I thought any crimes had been committed before their uh, news story went public. Well, as part of that, I got included on a cease and desist letter by the general counsel, Tom Shanahan, to the UNC system, who had sent to another attorney. You might recall Peter Romery was one of our guests two, three years ago. So he sent the letter to Peter, had my name in it, Basically saying you leaked this information to me, even though it was totally fucking different. That was the beginning of November. By the end of the November, we had the whole silent sham shit, where they gave 2.6 million fucking dollars to a bunch of clanners along with a statue. Well, in the midst of all this background, Randy Ramsey, who is their chairman, apparently has been lying about his academic credentials, and a paper in Charlotte, the Charlotte Ledger, decided to report on it Friday. And I'm going to excerpt you some stuff in the news story, but it really is just outlandishly comical how fucking stupid this shit is. So, from the story, it says, quote, in North Carolina, Randy Ramsey is no household name, but the Beaufort businessman holds one of the most powerful appointed positions in the state. He is chairman of the UNC Board of Governors, which oversees policy for the state's 16 public universities. And I will note, we also have a residential high school. There are 17 constituent institutions. Uh, Ramsey got the chairmanship in October, elected by colleagues to finish the term of his predecessor, Harry Smith, who unexpectedly resigned. Recently, I reached out to Ramsey. I wanted to know more about him and the secretive Silent Sam deal. The public still doesn't know who came up with the ill-fated plan. We also don't know how much the endeavor cost the university system. A conservative estimate would be $150,000. Add in fees for an outside lawyer the university system hired, and the total could top a quarter million. I also wanted to ask about his education credentials. Until the end of April, Ramsey's biography on the UNC Board of Governors' website said he had a degree in marine propulsion from Carteret Community College. That would be an associate degree, which requires two years of work. However, Carteret Community College says he graduated in 1981 with a diploma in marine diesel mechanics, a one-year program. After I so let me let me let me put a pause before we get to the bullshit that's coming up next. Uh, so this segment of the bio is actually on the website of Randy Ramsey's personal business. So he advertises himself as a business coach and a keynote speaker, and on there it says plain as day that he got a degree in marine propulsion. Now we all knew that was bullshit because if you go to the marine propulsion page on the Carteret website. It's a 10-week certificate program, and the United States Department of Education keeps track of majors and has done so since the early 80s, and Carter Community College has never had a major in marine propulsion, so we knew back in, like, March that Randy Ramsey was lying. We just didn't know what about, so this reporter reported on it, and this is where shit really gets, like, comical. You could have just said, okay, yeah, we fucked up and fixed it. But no, they go the extra mile when it comes to stupidity at uh, the University of North Carolina. The story continues quote, After I telephoned Ramsey to request an interview, a UNC Systems spokesman, Josh Ellis, returned my call. I explained that I wanted to ask Ramsey about his educational credentials and the Silent Sam deal. In an email, Ellis wrote this So, quote, regarding your questions about Chair Ramsey's bio, there is no discrepancy. He graduated with honors, parentheses 1981. From Carteret Community College, after studying marine diesel mechanics. When I rechecked Ramsey's bio on the Board of Governors' website, that's exactly what it said. But I had a screenshot from April 29th, and I'll note there's a screenshot in the story. Uh, Ramsey's bio had been changed, the mention of a degree deleted. I emailed the screenshot to Ellis and asked if he wanted to comment further. I haven't heard back from him or Ramsey. I don't know what kind of fucking boomers they've got working in the uh, University of North Carolina general administration. But guys, there's a website called archive.org where they actually like crawl web pages. There was no conceivable way you're going to be able to change this without people knowing about it. Because there's already multiple examples of that page saved in the archive. So it... That's bad enough. You had a spokesperson basically try to lie to a reporter. But then, so this story in the Charlotte Ledger came out Friday around 6 p.m. On Saturday afternoon, the Board of Governors announced a special meeting in 48 hours. So the chairman re-election was supposed to happen on May 20th. They moved it up to May 11th. So Monday afternoon, today... Well, I guess it's going to be yesterday from when you get this. So earlier today that I'm recording this, Ramsey got reelected with 21 votes out of the 26 board members. Now, people have asked, why would you move it up? My assumption is that Ramsey was very involved in architecting Silent Sham and his reward is getting to stay as chairman. And you have to go ahead and have that vote quickly before legislators in the public realize that he's been a fraud lying about his academic credentials. So that way you don't have a chance for them to coalesce around some alternative candidate. You want to keep your co-conspirators paid so they don't snitch. Uh, So those are stories from North Carolina. Our last one today in Ohio, This this is the other reference to the third rule. Uh, in the same episode, where the stay-at-home orders are basically only for people of color. So this is a report from ProPublica. It says, quote, On April 17th in Toledo, Ohio, a 19-year-old black man was arrested for violating the stay-at-home order. In court filings, police say he took a bus from Detroit to Toledo, subquote, without a valid reason. Six young black men were arrested in Toledo last Saturday while hanging out on a front lawn. Police allege they were, subquote, seen standing within six feet of each other. In Cincinnati, a black man was charged with violating stay-at-home orders after he was shot in the ankle on April 7th. According to a police affidavit, he was talking to a friend in the street when he was shot and was, subquote, clearly not engaged in essential activities. Ohio's health director, Dr. Amy Acton, issued the state stay-at-home order on March 22nd, prohibiting people from leaving their home except for essential activities and requiring them to maintain social distancing at all times. A violation of the order is a misdemeanor, punishable by up to 90 days in jail and a $750 fine. Since the order, hundreds of people have been charged with violations across Ohio. The state has also seen some of the most prominent protests against state stay-at-home orders as large crowds gather on the statehouse steps to flout the directives. But the protesters, most of them white, have not faced arrest. Rather, in three large Ohio jurisdictions that ProPublica examined, charges of violating the order appear to have fallen almost entirely on black people. ProPublica analyzed court records for the city of Toledo and for the counties that include Columbus and Cincinnati, three of the most populous jurisdictions in Ohio. In all of them, ProPublica found black people were at least four times as likely to be charged with violating the stay-at-home order as white people. As of Thursday night in Franklin County, which is 23.5% black, 129 people were arrested between the beginning of the stay-at-home order and May 4th. 57 percent of the people arrested were black. In Hamilton County, which is 27 percent black and home to Cincinnati, there were 107 charges. 61 percent of those defendants are black. The majority of arrests came from towns surrounding Cincinnati, which is 43% black. Of the 29 people charged by the city's police department, 79% were black, according to data provided to ProPublica by the Hamilton County Public Defender. In Toledo, where black people make up 27% of the population, 18 of the 23 people charged this fall were black, which is 78%. So just like New York... They're using the stay-at-home orders not to enforce public health, but for white people to do what they want while they keep the minorities at home. Uh, So, folks, that is it for the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. We do have one more story out of Hong Kong that I cannot find the uh, notes to. It should be in my outline, but basically one of the Hong Kong police was selling meth or drugs or some shit. Uh, So we'll throw that into the next episode. So that's it for today. Uh, On behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thanks for listening. Uh, Oh, I forget. Uh, Please do us a favor. Tell your friends that we are here. Encourage them to listen. Uh, Leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, any of the apps you use to listen to us. Uh, And now, also on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, don't catch the coronavirus, and we will talk to you next week. Take care.